This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, a warning about certain antibiotics during pregnancy, where you have your rehab for a traumatic injury counts and home may be best. Does knowing your genes help predict your cardiac future? And after a weekend where pundits have been arguing that the coronavirus epidemic may have reached a turning point and is close to becoming a pandemic, if it already hasn't, in other words, gone truly global, I thought it was time for a catch-up. And just to complicate things, the new name for the virus is SARS-CoV-2, or COV-2, leaving COVID-19 as the name for the disease it causes. Late last week, a study in the New England Journal of Medicine found that the viral load, the amount of virus, in an asymptomatic person was the same as in people who were sick, which, if generalizable, is a real worry. There's an unknown number of cases in Iran. It must be in the many hundreds. There's an outbreak in northern Italy, one in South Korea, and locking down nations or borders is becoming progressively harder. And the January influenza report from the New South Wales Health Department shows a significant spike of people in January turning up to emergency departments with respiratory symptoms, yet testing negative for influenza. Professor Raina McIntyre has been watching SARS-CoV-2 closely. Raina heads the Kirby Institute's Biosecurity Research Program at the University of New South Wales. Welcome back to the Health Report, Raina. Good evening, Norman. So first, let's talk about this report in the New England Journal of Medicine last Thursday, Australian time. What, can you just give us a bit more detail on that? Yeah, so we've been getting more and more information suggesting that asymptomatic transmission is possible, particularly from the Japanese testing everyone on board the Diamond Princess and also testing all their evacuees from Wuhan. They found a number of people who were asymptomatic but positive. The paper in the New England Journal um, had two important findings. One is that they found that the level of virus shedding from the respiratory tract was the same in people who were asymptomatic and symptomatic, which means that Uh, asymptomatic people could be just as infectious as symptomatic people. And the second thing they found was that the highest level of viral shedding was very early in the infection. So we know that with people who do have symptomatic disease, that it usually starts with several days, you know, five to nine days of very mild illness, where people may be wandering around and thinking that they're they haven't got it, um, and but that's when it's most infectious, right at the beginning. So that's a concern as well. And that makes it more like influenza than SARS. That's right. SARS was generally only contagious when it when people were symptomatic. So um, th- diseases like that are easier to control than diseases where there is asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic transmission. Now, this report, this influenza report from New South Wales Health. Um, is there anything to it? This spike in people turning up in casualty in the emergency department in January with respiratory symptoms, but it wasn't flu? Um, I've had a look at it, and I don't think it's li- I don't think it's likely to be it's possible, but I don't think it's likely to be coronavirus because at that time, and you have to look at the incubation period, right? So two weeks before, if people had left China two weeks before, the number of cases in China wasn't as high as it became after about January the 20th. Um, and secondly, we have seen a lot of summer flu last year particularly and now again this year. So we have – and that's often from people travelling in, in our long summer holidays to the Northern Hemisphere, to Europe or the US. They pick up flu, they come back. 
So we certainly saw that a year ago, saw um, a lot more flu than we'd normally expect, um, and it could be just the flu. I, I did read in the report that rhinovirus, which is the common cold virus, was also um, a frequent diagnosis in people with these presentations. And if it was coronavirus, I it think would have we appeared would, by now. Yeah, we'd expect to see more severely ill people, people with pneumonia, and that the pneumonia trends have not jumped. Could there be a hidden reservoir in the population, independent of the New South Wales report? There could be because of the nature of the virus, but it's far less likely in a country like Australia that's taken pretty stringent measures uh, with border control and quarantine um, than in, say, you know, Iran or Italy, which is seeing outbreaks at the moment. Now, you and I spoke two or three weeks ago. I mean, things are happening incredibly quickly. I mean, it was near the beginning of the, the, the story. What do we know now, in summary, that we didn't know two or three weeks ago, apart from what we've just spoken about, the asymptomatic spread? So we know that we have more confidence in some of the parameters that were very uncertain. Um, that was around the 2nd of February, I think we spoke. Um, and that includes um, the fact that the case fatality rate does look like it's around 2 to 3%. The um, reproductive number looks like it's about 2.2. That's the estimate I'm going with. Which is the number that you spread to. Each person, yeah, yeah, in fact, yeah, the number of people that one person will infect on average. Um, when I spoke to you, sorry, go on, yeah, no, no, that's when when I spoke to you last time, I said to you, Well, how worried are you on a scale of one to ten? and you said seven, and you'd only start becoming concerned when numbers peaked. What's your level of concern now? Well, it would be nine, I think, because the epidemic peaked in China around the 5th to the 6th of February and the numbers have been declining since. Um, however, that's just confirmed cases. We know there's more cases than the confirmed cases. Um, so that's kind of a bit like the tip of the iceberg. But I think they've got a reasonable handle on things in China. Um the problem now is we're starting to see these epidemics pop up in other countries like South Korea, um, Italy, Iran, um, where um, I think the, the case finding has been probably quite good in South Korea, maybe not so in Iran, and um, uh, it's probably improved a bit in the last couple of days in Italy because they went from having you know, two deaths and just a few handful of cases to 150 cases or so. So they've obviously gone out and actively looked for cases in Italy. Um, so is, is 10 but, a pandemic? I mean, what, what's 10 in your scale? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, as in it, it's a pandemic. So, so it's 10, everywhere. Uh, um, so I'm thinking it's sort of 90% likelihood a pandemic will occur, but there's still a 10% likelihood it won't. So let's... What what does it look like if we start getting cases? I mean, you know, we can't. You know, China's one thing, but we can't stop flights coming in from Rome, from Paris, from Singapore, and other parts of the world. So, assuming that it hits our, if it does hit our shores, what does our pandemic preparedness look like? What is what happens in Australia when it's declared a pandemic here? So. Um if there still isn't sustained transmission in Australia, because there doesn't, when they declare a pandemic, there doesn't have to be sustained transmission everywhere. So if we still only have cases that are coming off cruise ships or um, from China um, that we've quarantined, etc., 
then we would maintain those measures to try to keep it out as long as possible. If, however, we have sustained transmission in the community, then we move to mitigation, which means we move to measures to minimise the morbidity and the mortality in our population. And as we roll closer to winter, that would include vaccinating people with influenza vaccine, making sure we get the vaccination rates up high because um, it certainly was documented in China that there were co-infections with influenza and COVID-19. Um, so you want to you prevent all the things you can prevent to reduce the impact. Um, we would also have to be, you know, making sure we keep our healthcare workers safe and also uh, managing the resources in our health system. So we would see um, a need for surge capacity of hospital beds, of intensive care beds, of just beds to be able to isolate patients and, um, uh, you know, then we'd move to sort of backup plans if, if those were exceeded. But, of course, that's just assuming that it's symptomatic, there'll be people getting off planes who don't know they've got it, and even if you tested yeah. them, they'd be negative and they're going to be positive in a few days' time. This, it's um, not a rosy prospect if it occurs. Yeah, so in terms of asymptomatic transmission in the community, you'd be looking at things like banning of mass gatherings, you know, banning of sporting events, of um, uh, concerts, um, maybe even school closures, um, to prevent that intense transmission. And I would guess that young people probably are more likely to spread it asymptomatically um, just because of the age-specific um, distribution of the severity of disease. Raina, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Raina McIntyre is, uh, Professor Raina McIntyre heads the Kirby Institute's Biosecurity Research Program at the University of New South Wales. This is RN's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. The safety of medications in pregnancy has, since the thalidomide tragedy in the 50s and 60s, well, the 60s really, been a highly contentious issue, with the general advice being that unless a medication is deemed essential, women should avoid taking anything. But sometimes that's not possible, say, with depression, epilepsy or other long-term conditions. And occasionally, an antibiotic is necessary to protect both the mother and the baby. The question is which antibiotic to use. In women who have a penicillin allergy, an alternate option is a family of antibiotics called the macrolides, drugs like erythromycin, clarithromycin and azithromycin. Concerns about their safety in pregnancy are not new, which is why there's been a huge study in Britain to pin down the risk, if any. One of the researchers was Ruth Gilbert, who's Professor of Clinical Epidemiology at University College London. Welcome to the Health Report. Thank you. What was suspected about the macrolides yeah. before you did this study? So there's been evidence in the past, um, as long ago as 2005, Sweden published a study showing an increased risk of uh, cardiovascular uh, malformations in children of women who are prescribed uh, macrolide antibiotics in pregnancy. And actually Sweden at that time issued a warning about using macrolides, but that wasn't picked up um, until uh, around 2010 when there was a very large trial um, called the Oracle Study, which showed a surprising increased risk of cerebral palsy um, and epilepsy in women who had had uh, macrolides instead of uh, amoxicillin. So that led us to, to look at this more closely. Uh, and, and since then, there's been studies that have shown an increased risk of miscarriage um, and then this study where we showed an increased risk of major malformations, particularly 
uh, cardiac malformations in women treated in the first trimester. And we also showed an increased risk of genital malformations. But all of these are small, um, uh, but, but there are alternatives to macrolides. And this was a large study of 100,000 kids born between uh, 1990 and 2016 whose mothers had either had erythromycin or a related antibiotic or penicillin. And I presume you did it that way because the infection itself could cause a birth abnormality. I mean, you've got to separate the antibiotics from the reason you're taking the antibiotic. That's right. So, so, so that's the problem. It's very hard to pick up evidence of harm because uh, many women will be benefiting, or at least their children will be, from the uh, effect of the treatment on the infection. So the ideal group is actually to study macrolides in people who really um, have a very low risk of infection or, or, or no infection. So our study focused down just on women who received a single course of antibiotics. So we didn't look at those that had repeated antibiotics because they're more likely to have severe infection. So, and we also looked at women that, that we also looked at people that had um, uh, respiratory tract infections, uh, which are usually virus infections. And we found similar findings. Basically, we found this increased risk particularly for treatment in the first trimester. So what you found was that in the first trimester, there was this risk of cardiac defects, and then throughout there were genital defects, and I think one was hypospadias, which is an abnormality of the penis being the commonest one, the baby's penis being the commonest one. Um, but you didn't find any, any of the, or developmental problems? Did you find miscarriages? I mean, did you repeat you know, cerebral palsy and things like that? Did you find the same things that other studies had found? So we didn't find any effect on, on cerebral palsy, but in, in this study we were looking at the, the whole of pregnancy and so that doesn't rule out that there may be um, effects of these antibiotics at particular stages in pregnancy. We found that, um, that the biggest effect was, was in that very susceptible, sensitive stage of pregnancy, which is the first trimester. Um, and we were able to calculate that for every 1,000 women treated with macrolides instead of penicillins in the first trimester, then there'd be an additional 10 with major malformations, of which four would have cardiac malformations. So that's a small risk, but it's significant. And there are alternative antibiotics that women can take. What we need to emphasize is these risks are still low and it's really important that women don't stop taking antibiotics if they do have an infection because the harm from an infection to an unborn baby is uh, much greater. And just finally, do we know that the other the alternate antibiotics, the commonest ones are called the cephalosporins, antibiotics like cephalexin, do we know that those are safe as well as penicillin? I mean, are they, are they safe? As far as we know, yes. Um, that there haven't been the same sort of recurrent alerts about uh, that there have been about macrolides, which incidentally it also um, leads, can lead to cardiac events in adults who have high risk of heart disease. So it's not just a problem. Sorry, we seem to have lost Ruth Gilbert there. Ruth Gilbert is Professor of Clinical Epidemiology at University College London. So if you're actually prescribed antibiotics, you should ask which one, and if it's erythromycin, have another chat with your doctor. One of the common misconceptions about whether you need treatment for your blood pressure or cholesterol is that it depends on how high your levels are. 
Sure, if they're sky high, you need to be treated, but most people have mildly raised cholesterol and blood pressure levels. And whether you need treatment actually depends on what's called your absolute risk. That's your individual risk of, say, a heart attack or stroke over the next five or ten years. In Australia, the way that's commonly measured uses a number of variables, including your age, your gender, smoking, blood pressure, and your HDL cholesterol level. Now, you can add others, such as whether you have diabetes, kidney damage, atrial fibrillation, that's an abnormal uh, heartbeat from the top of your heart, or an autoimmune disease, which causes inflammation in the arteries. But in this era of genomics, could your genetic profile help to predict your future? The trouble is that there's rarely just one gene involved in heart disease risk. There could be hundreds. Undaunted by this, a British team of researchers has tried to see if your multi-gene profile adds anything to the more traditional, low-tech ways of assessing cardiovascular risk. Joshua Elliott was the lead author. Joshua is in the School of Public Health at Imperial College London. Welcome to The Health Report, Joshua. Thanks for having me on. Now, this was a massive study, over 350,000 people. That's right. It was using the UK Biobank, which is an excellent resource, um, which in total has half a million people, but yeah, 350,000 of which were the test population. So what is this Biobank? So uh, people aged from the age of 40 to 69 years old, um, they're volunteers, they get put themselves forward to have a lot of information collected about themselves, allow their hospital data to be um, uh, associated with information collected at baseline, including blood biomarkers, um, information about their their, their routine, their daily life, you know, they answered questionnaires on themselves and they were followed up for, uh, in this study, we have uh, on average eight years of follow-up for these people. Which and is, it's an amazing resource. So that's, so, and the 350,000 people you studied, where, why did you choose them as a subgroup? So obviously we have to exclude people that have any sort of um, cardiovascular disease at baseline. But um, so what we were doing, as you introduced so well, we're using what's called a polygenic risk score uh, to add on to existing clinical risk scores for heart disease. A polygenic risk score has to be tuned for the uh, outcome of interest of heart disease. So you need to have people that are baseline uh, are your cases and then you need your controls. So we use the prevalent cases of um, of heart disease and matched for age and sex controls and uh, that that was able to to tune a polygenic risk score. And then you have to get rid of people that obviously are lacking the relevant data or, or the other people that we didn't use that already have had some form of cardiovascular disease at baseline. And, and so essentially, this is a massive number of genes. It's not just your off-the-shelf, you know, 23andMe test. Yeah, so the kinds of tests that we do, so just briefly, so people understand what we're talking about, you need a base, what's called a, a GWAS, which stands for a Genome Wide Association Study. And that's looking at roughly just under a million common variants between people. These aren't the rare variants that you sort of um, that can cause familial inherited disorders like familial hypercholesterolemia, for instance, or the familial dilated cardiomyopathies. So there's a whole different thing. It's entirely not what we're looking at. So these, these are common these variants. Are, these are the common garden genes that, in aggregate, uh, increase exactly. your risk of heart disease. And and, exactly. and and the absolute risk score, the low the low tech side had a, a, a lot more variables than just your cholesterol and your blood pressure. It was that wider group of variables that I mentioned in my intro. Yeah, so the UK score has lots and lots of variables uh, that were selected out by a group here, and that was trained on uh, millions of people using GP-based data, you know, your family physician. Um, and the, the US score was our primary analysis because it was in a US journal, but that uses a lot fewer. And the, the UK population is obviously more represented by the, the it's called the QRIS, which is the score that's used, but it did perform slightly better. So how good, how much did the um, gene testing add to the prediction of whether or not you're going to get a heart attack or stroke? 
So it's difficult to go not too statistical with this, but basically it did add statistically significantly, but it was very little. And um, let me illustrate that with just a few numbers. So for most people that we followed up, as I said, over a mean of eight years, um, their predicted risk of heart disease, their 10-year risk, because that's what we tend to talk about, Mm -hmm. uh, although in Australia you tend to deal with five-year risk. For most people, their, their risk didn't actually change by much, if anything. So around 80% of people had their risk changed by less than 1%. And nearly 99% of people had their risk changed by less than 5%. So the good... Um, so the now, good but, so go on. I was just going to say, uh, what we tend to do, though, is we tend to use these sorts of scores for risk stratification. So basically saying whether you're high risk or essentially low or moderate risk. And it's the high risk people that tend to be treated differently. Um, so at that level, uh, again, it might be slightly misleading, but if you're using a 7.5% threshold 10-year risk, which is what's used in the US, it, the addition of the polygenic risk score actually conferred a sort of 4% improvement in accuracy. But if we look at the numbers of that, it might be more um, informative. So overall, 1,100 people uh, were sort of picked up using the clinical risk score that's used in the US. 1,100 people out of around 6,300 that actually had heart disease over the follow-up time. So that's not, an, not a huge amount of people that are being picked up, really. But there's a very small improvement on addition to the polygenic risk score. So 250 of those 1,100 are actually moved into the lower risk category. So those people are potentially missing the required sort of interventions that they could have had. And an additional 526 are being moved up from the group that get missed. So there's a... Uh, and I think I had... So there's an error, an error factor in there. So, the, so, the, so gene testing, apart from the fact that this is a laboratory thing, it's not... You know, this is not commercially feasible to do this sort of thing on everybody, and it's very much a research thing. So, essentially, gene testing is not ready for showtime for assessing your cardiac risk. Well, that's the thing. And, you know, some people are very interested in polygenic risk scores for risk prediction. But, I mean, as you say, you'd have to have your genetic information for every single person in the population, really, in order to use it usefully. And, of course, that's a huge financial cost, but there's also a huge um, ethical cost to that. I mean, storing genetic information on every single person in the the population. Um, And I I just want to stress from a sort of public health point of view, you're still missing, even upon addition of the polygenic risk score, you're still missing about 80% of heart disease cases because most disease happens in people that are either moderate or low risk. So that's why it's so important to sort of improve the lifestyle of in terms of healthy lifestyle decisions um, of the rest of the population, you know, things like stopping smoking, increasing physical activity, um, things that have already been done, like banning smoking in public, public places or, um, you know, taxing sugar or taxing alcohol, that kind of thing. Joshua, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. Join us relatives in the School of Public Health at Imperial College London. A study published in this week's Medical Journal of Australia has asked the question, if you've had an orthopaedic trauma to your lower limb, say a fracture, and need rehab, Where's the best place to have it, as an inpatient in hospital or at home? It's a huge issue because there are significant costs involved in staying in hospital for your rehab, which are worth it if you get back on your feet and back to work faster. But what they found was that home rehab was better. Lyra Kimmel was the lead author. Lyra is a senior physiotherapist and allied team health leader at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. Welcome to the Health Report. Thanks very much. What What kind of injuries did you look at? So we looked at all um, leg fractures or lower limb fractures from the pelvis to the foot, essentially, in um, patients aged 18 to 64 through the Victorian Orthopaedic Trauma Outcomes Registry. And what outcomes were you measuring? So we measured functional recovery, patient-reported functional recovery using the GOAST score. And also, importantly, we chose a working-aged adult group of 18 to 64 in order to have a look at return to work as well. And it was about 8,000 people. And what did you exactly, what did you find? 
So we found that the odds of a better functional recovery were halved in those who were discharged to inpatient rehabilitation rather than home. Halved? And also halved, and importantly, they were more than halved in the group uh, in terms of return to work. That's extraordinary. I mean, is this controlled for severe severity? I mean, you might think, well, if you've got a really short limb and you've had a bad car accident, they're, they're going to keep you in hospital for your rehab versus if it's just a sort of ordinary break in your ankle, they'll send you, send you home. Is it corrected for severity? Yeah, so we did do propensity score matching. So I had three statisticians helping me on this paper. Um, it what Severity is not one of the um, aspects collected by Votor. However, we um, did match for cause of injury. So often the high um, speed motor vehicle accidents are the ones that cause the more severe injuries. And, and that was that group was well matched for, in terms of return to work. So even matched for that, they're better. And we're talking about physiotherapists going to home, or are you coming into hospital to outpatient physio? What was what was the yeah? Rehab? So what we so what we looked at was inpatient rehabilitation versus home. We actually don't know what the patients received at home. So all all we know is that the two groups, the difference between the two groups, were inpatient rehabilitation versus going home. So when somebody's sent home from the Alfred, they yeah. just sort of wipe their hands and say, go home, you know, you're going to be no, fine? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, so we do um, always arrange uh, physiotherapy, either at home or through community for a lower limb fracture. And um, we, we aim to help them by providing home-based therapy if we can. And there's a new service through the Alfred called Better at Home, in which um, physiotherapists, nurses, occupational therapists, doctor can all go and visit the patients at home. So what's happening in hospital that the recovery rate's lower if you've, if you've matched for severity? Uh, well, we have just to be sh- just to be clear, we haven't matched for severity. For severity, we have managed to match for cause of injury, but it's important to note we haven't matched for severity or complications. Uh, so, what is happening in hospital? Essentially, we don't know. We have done previous qualitative studies talking to rehabilitation physicians, surgeons, and allied health, and it certainly seems like perhaps patients are more sedentary in hospitals, so they do more incidental exercise at home. And we're looking into, into more research in that regard in terms of how much patients do in hospital compared to how much they do at home. And we also know that there is an increased risk of hospital-based harms um, for every night that you spend in hospital. So um, I think that patients are safer going home as well. Now, there has been some work done in people with joint replacement, suggesting that joint replacement rehab is done better at home. Do you have definitely? Yeah. So I think that our our um, research here just supplements that research because there has been randomised control trials in the area of total knee replacements, um, and certainly it shows equivalent data whether you go home or to inpatient rehab. And as you mentioned in your opening, it is more costly to go to inpatient rehab. So uh, lots of um, private and public institutions are now managing elective joint replacements at home. And we will hope that based on our findings that we will be able to um, develop some models for delivery of trauma rehab in the home as well or in the community um, with the note that more funding might actually be needed in order to provide what is necessary at home. The trade-off is that you don't have the cost of staying in hospital. And presumably this isn't for everybody because if you live alone or you're a bit frail, um, it might be better being in hospital for your rehab. Yes, exactly, exactly. So we have shown in a previous study that patients who are frailer may require inpatient rehab. And that's why we, um, in this study here, we did limit it to the age of 64. And although we didn't have frailty in our uh, in-voter, we did have pre-injury health status. So patient reported pre-injury health status, which again was well matched in our study. Lara, thanks for joining us. 
No problem. Thanks very much. Lara Kimmel is a senior physiotherapist and allied health team leader at Alfred Health in Melbourne. I'm Norman Swan. This has been The Health Report. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.